Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's Bible reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and and the iniquities of their ancestors. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day, and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord, their God. All of the Levites stood on the raised platform built for the Levites, and they cried out loudly to the Lord, their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. While you're turning there, I want to open up with how the scriptures open up. The, the Bible starts with a beautiful, life-giving, creative God. And this God wants nothing more than to bless his creation, humans, and to enjoy life with his creation. Genesis 1 and 2 paint a picture of God as a powerful God, as a creative God, and as a loving God. And the pinnacle of his creation was humans. On the sixth day, he made humans, and he blessed the humans. And the goal of this creation was so that God would be with his people, and his people would be together in perfect relationship, and they would, they would live life to the fullest. They would build, they would create, they would explore all while doing all these things with with God. And then you get to chapter three of Genesis, which is sometimes referred to as the fall, and sin is introduced. And what sin does is it breaks relationships. Sin breaks relationships. In Genesis chapter three, we see that sin broke the relationship between God and man. Their relationship was now severed. And we also see that it broke the relationship between man and man, between Adam and Eve, but their relationship was severed. There was a lack of trust. There was lack of intimacy. And as the scriptures continue over and over and over again, one thing becomes abundantly clear. A lot of things become clear, but really one thing becomes abundantly clear, and that is this. Everything that is bad is a result of sin. Every situation that is broken, every time somebody is in distress or turmoil, every time there's a conflict or a tension, In the scriptures, it is a result of sin. Everything that is bad is a result of sin. Uh, Here's a few examples. There's the stress and there's a tension between a husband and wife. Uh, Every husband and wife in the scriptures, there's there's, there's a lack of trust. There's lying. We see this even in the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve. When the, immediately when they sinned, they recognized their differences and they covered up their differences because there was a lack of trust and a lack of vulnerability there. Another uh, example is the chaos and hate in, in among siblings. Odds are, if you were to take any siblings from the Bible, 
probably, I'd be willing to bet, I haven't fact-checked this yet, but probably one of the siblings tried to kill another one of the siblings, right? There's this sibling rivalry there that they're trying to, I mean, the first two siblings, Cain and Abel, one of them actually killed the other. You have uh, Jacob and Esau, and then you have Jacob's 12 sons, and what, it's this constant sibling rivalry. There's tension, there's conflict, there's anger, there's hate, there's murder. All of that distress and turmoil is a result of sin. Here's another example. David, the King David, is king. He, uh, his son is trying to, well, about two times. He runs away from Saul, and then he runs away from his own son. He is righteous. He did no wrong, and yet he is fleeing for his life because of the sin, right? He, he didn't do anything wrong, and yet his situation where he is, his life is threatened is because of sin. The scriptures, if anything, if they're one thing, they're, they are a magnifying glass on the human condition. They are an amplification of the human problem. And that is this, sin is everywhere, and everything that is wrong is a result of sin. And these examples are little uh, expressions of death that pop up because of the world, because of the devil, and because of our flesh. And isn't this true in our own lives too? That more often than not, everything that is going wrong, everything that is bad, is a result of sin? all the situations in our lives that are distressful, that are unpleasant, that are broken, that cause agony, or that are downright evil are a result of sin. Here's a few examples. Maybe you've experienced them. I know I've experienced some as well. Somebody says something wrong about you. Uh, Somebody speaks ill of you. A coworker, a friend, a significant other or a spouse, a loved one. There's gossip there's slander, and you hear about it. And then the response is, is a whole range of emotions, right? When we hear about that, we, sometimes we feel let down and just hurt. How could, that, how could that person say that thing about me? We might feel embarrassed, right? If this is going around, well, what if people think this is true? I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. We might feel anger. That should not be. That situation is a result of sin. Here's another one that's not a sin of somebody else, it's a sin of an internal sin, and this might hit home a little deeper, I know it did for me. I wonder how many of us have ever struggled with being critical of others. Being more able to point out the faults in somebody than the good things in somebody else. We might assume that people will act a certain way and we minimize them to actually what we think or believe about them. And this isn't just the sin of being rude or judgmental, and it's definitely not the gift of discernment. It actually stems from a pride in ourselves, an insecurity in ourselves that if I'm not living by a standard of grace, if I'm living by a standard of works, then I am therefore critical of myself and I'm using that same criticalness and cynicism to evaluate you and then what happens, walls are up that are almost impossible to tear down and there's no actual relationship, there's no community. And we feel isolated. And then we feel like nobody understands us. And then we don't know how to actually engage in community. All of this is a result of sin. One more example. I've thought about this way too much. It's something that I struggle with all the time. The thought and the sin and the consequence and the result of it is this. This is the thought. I am one of the, I'm one of the elite Christians. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now. I know my stuff. 
And I, I only interact, I want to interact with people who know their stuff. Or maybe it's, I came from a really solid church background. And so I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm sharp. I have some theological qualms with a church or a person or a position, and because of that, I feel like I'm actually outside of that, able to judge and analyze and criticize it, not submitting to it. I was on a church plant team, so clearly I'm bought in, and I get it. The result of that, also hear me when I say that I struggle with those thoughts, the result of that is a works-based righteousness. The result of that is dead religion. The result of that is what Jesus would call me a whitewashed tomb, really pretty on the outside and dead on the inside. The result of that is putting God in your pocket and walking around like he is something you have, just like a car or a house. And ultimately the result of that is disunity within the local church, where I would be more committed to my own self-righteousness than the needs of the body of Christ. Scriptures have a lot of names for this. People who are arrogant, people who are stiff-necked, people who have a God on their lips, but their heart is far from them. This distress, this disunity, these things are a result of sin. Everything that is broken, that causes distress, they are little expressions of death, and they are a result of sin. Now, what I'm not saying is that sin is like karma. I'm not saying that. You could hear me say, well, if you do something bad, if you sin, then therefore these bad things are happening. It's a one-to-one correlation, and the opposite is if you do something good, something good will happen to you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that sin is like karma. Biblically, sin manifests itself in three arenas, and it's much more than an action. I think a lot of times we think that sin is only an action. If I do this thing, that is the sin. If I think this way, that is the sin. Now, is sin an action? Yes, that, that is true. But even beyond that, sin is also a, it's a power. It's a force. The scripture des- describes sin as crouching at your door. It's, sin's desire is for you. And so what I'm not saying is that sin is just an action and that sin is like karma because um, when you look at the scriptures, the sin manifests itself in three arenas. This is uh, traditional uh, as well, where it's sin manifests itself in the world. We don't need to look very far to know that the world is broken. The world has gone awry. There are powers that be, as Ephesians 6 calls them. Sin is in the world. Sin is also in the devil. There are spiritual beings at force, at play, that influence us, that distract us, that change our thinking, that affect us, that cause us to sin, and it is itself sin. And then finally, sin manifests itself in the flesh, the world, the devil, and the flesh. My flesh is sinful. We live in a broken world. Now, why am I saying all this? Why am I starting off with a very intense, uh, maybe even dark introduction? I, I, I want to, I, hopefully, I, I want to paint a picture of the, what it feels like to what, it, what it's like to feel and see the results of our sin. I, I want us to feel and see the results of our sin because we're gonna answer this, the text today answers this question that's gonna be on the screen. We're gonna be answering the question, when we see and feel the result of our sin, what do we do? When we see and we feel the results of our sin, we can see the results of our sin. We can see the results of other people's sin. We feel the results of our sin. We can feel the results of other people's sin. 
What do we do in those moments? And Nehemiah 9, chapter 9, answers this question. It doesn't answer this question in a, state, in a sentence, in a statement, like, here's what you do when you see and feel the results of your sin. That'd be nice, but it doesn't do that. I think better, it actually shows us a story. That's how it answers the question. It answers this question by giving us a story, a story of the people of Israel and a story of the character of God. So if you're new to AGC this week, or um, only been here for a little bit, we've been going through a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. In the last couple weeks, we've been in the book of Ezra, and it, to, to catch us up to speed, the people of Israel had been scattered for generations. They had been overtaken by, their sin led them into being overtaken by Babylon. Eventually, Babylon kind of fell, and Persia arose in its place. And the king of Persia, way back, you know, when, like a couple decades from the current place where we are in the text, said to um, a couple Israelites, he said, hey, you know what, you can go back to Israel and you can build your own city again, you can build your temple, you can have your own government officials, all that. We'll still be in charge of you, so we'll take the best of your stuff, we'll take the first fruits, if you will. So they taxed them really heavily. They took the best of their fruit, the best of their land, the best of their cattle, but they kind of had this freedom. So the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah has been these waves of Israelites returning back to their land, and they are excited. They're like, this is, this is the new exodus. This is the new creation. We're finally gonna be in the promised land with God. This is great. And a few weeks ago, the last, uh, the last wall was built. So they started with the temple, then they built the community, and now they, Nehemiah led the vision and the mission to build the actual city walls. And last week, what uh, Tom brought out in Nehemiah chapter eight is that when they did that, they all gathered together, all of Israel gathered together, and they read the law. And as they were reading the law, these people were like, man, we've, we've sinned, we've messed up. So they wanted to weep and they wanted to mourn, but then uh, the Levites, the priests, the pastors, whatever, they were there and they were like, hey, actually, this is a holiday, this is a celebration. This is a celebration of God's faithfulness. So we're not gonna weep. We're not gonna do that. We're actually gonna focus on God's holiness. That, that was last week. This week, it fast forwards about a month or so from the text from last week. And this is the confession. This is them recognizing, seeing, and feeling the results of their sin and then what they do in response to that. Now, uh, the, you know, some things are, are uh, the medium is the message, right, sometimes. And uh, the, the text of Nehemiah chapter 9 is actually very beautiful. It's a prayer of confession. So I'm going to set it up here for a minute, but we're actually going to try something new today. And I've asked a few people to help me out in reading this text because it's a, the chapter 9 is about 37 verses. It's not about 37 verses. It is 37 verses. And uh, instead of me talking through it or trying to read it in, in one sitting or trying to dissect it like a butterfly, what we're going to do instead is we're going to have people come up. They've already, don't worry, I've already asked them. So if you're sitting there and you're like, is he going to call on me to come up and read? No, I will not. Um, but periodically, we're going to have people come up and read about a paragraph of it because it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful display of God's faithfulness <laughs> that starts in creation and ends where they are currently. So we're going to read it. I'm going to point out a few highlights, if you will, and then we're going to uh, wrap it all up at the end and see what our response should be when we see and we feel the results of our sin. 
So I know I read this already, but I wanna, I wanna start in um, verses one through four. This will not be on the screen, but everything else after this will be on the screen. I'm gonna start in verses one through four, set up the stage, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So this is Nehemiah chapter nine. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and they had put dust on their heads. This is a, a picture of them. They have recognized their sin. They were read from the law and they realized that the sins of their ancestors have actually become the sins of themselves and their response is, is mourning. Their response is viewing their sin as a death. Let's keep going. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood and then what did they do? They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. They confessed their sins. While they stood in their places, verse three, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession. By the way, that's every pastor's dream, every congregation member's nightmare for a fourth of the day to be a sermon. <clears throat> in confession and worship of the Lord, their God. Okay, look at those two words. What did they do? They stood for the day in confession and then they stood and worshiped. They confessed and they worshiped. They confessed and they Worshipped, And then there's a list of names, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the raised platform built for the Levites and they cried out loudly to their Lord, their God. This is the, se this is the setting. There are people that are there and they're mourning. And so these Levites get up and they cry out loudly to the Lord, their God. The rest of the chapter nine is this prayer. So the first section is, uh, starts in verse 5b, and it goes to verse 8, and Leanne will read verses 5b through 8. Stand up. Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their stars the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. The prayer starts with what? Hallowed be your name. God, you are the creator. God, you are majestic. Interestingly, the phrase in the end of verse five, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. That's the only time that that phrase is used in the entire Old Testament. It's taking their blessing and its praise and it's saying, actually God, I want you to be blessed above the blessing that I can give you. It's painting this picture of this transcendent, holy, powerful, creative God. And then what does it do in verse uh, seven? It zeroes in on this guy named Abram. Right? This is the story of the Old Testament. Zeroes in this guy named Abram, even though, this is the point, even though God is above, even though God is holy, even though God is majestic and he created all, yet he still chooses to be with his people. He chose Abraham to bless him, not just so that Abraham could hoard the blessing, but so that he can be a blessing to all the nations. 
He gives them this land. And he, it says here at the end of verse eight that um, you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. God is righteous. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. The next section is verses nine through 15. And Anne is going to read this for us. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands statutes, and instruction through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. After Abraham's in the land for some time, uh, <laughs> Jacob's 12 sons end up in Egypt because Joseph actually brought them out of famine and saved them. Well, eventually Egypt grew and this people group grew as well and they did not remember Joseph and Egypt then enslaved the Israelites. They became their slaves and for 400 years, they were enslaved to Egypt and they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And what does it say in verse uh, nine? You saw their oppression and you heard their cry. His people were in pain and his people were enslaved, and God heard their cry. Quick question, what are you in pain because of? What are you enslaved to? Because if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God will hear your cry. God is faithful to deliver his people. He performed signs. This is in the Exodus when Moses takes the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and it says that God provided for them. God gave them the law this beautiful law to, to, to keep them accountable, to show them the way in which they should go. And then notice in verse 14, it says, you revealed your holy Sabbath to them. Why is the Sabbath point, uh, noted above all the, other, all the other commands? Well, can you imagine being enslaved for 400 years where you're working probably close to 24-7 and we know that we are not created for just mundane, monotonous uh, work? For toil, we were not created for toil. We were created for six days of working, one day of rest. That's the rhythm of God. And he says to this people, I, I want you to remember this. I want you to stop every week for one day a week and remember that I'm the one that's faithful. I'm the one that will perform the miracles. Your toil will not. The next section is from verses 16 through 21, and Corbin Z will be reading these. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. 
They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. Then they had commanded, or committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. This is the wilderness generation. For 40 years after Egypt, what happens? They go in the wilderness, and they go in the wilderness, and they wander in the wilderness, and they're there, and sometimes they pass a test, but most times they do not pass a test. Interestingly, in verse 16, it says what? That our ancestors, the Israelites, acted arrogantly. In the previous section, it said who acted arrogantly? The Egyptians. So the people of God are now sinning in the same exact way that the Egyptians sinned. They refused to listen. They did not obey. And then look at the end of verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. That phrase, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love, by the way, is the most repeated phrase in the entire Bible. The most repeated phrase in the entire Bible. Probably means what? That it's important. This is the revelation of God's character to his people. If you remember in Exodus uh, 34, Moses asks uh, his name, or he, he already knows the Lord's name, which is Yahweh. And the Lord reveals himself again to Moses. And he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. That is the character of the God that we serve. Slow to anger. Gracious. Compassionate. Towards a stiff-necked, obstinate, arrogant people who do not listen. He continues, after, after they, they casted an image for a calf for themselves, they said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And what did he not do? He did not abandon them. He gave them his spirit. And then it also says this too. It said that for 40 years they were wandering around and their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God cares about the little things too. God cares about giving them food, about giving them clothes, about providing for them physically. And so he did. God cares about the little things as well. The next section is verses 22 through 25, and this will be read by Janet Whedon. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky and brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go to in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. 
You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile land and took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rock, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate, were filled, became prosperous, and delighted in your great goodness. After they had wandered for 40 years, Moses sends them into the promised land. You might know the story of Joshua, and he leads the people, and he says, be strong and courageous. The Lord your God is with you. Do not be afraid. He starts defeating enemies, and he starts entering the land, the land that Abraham and his sons had. Then they went to Egypt, then they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, and now they are returning into the land and possessing it. Look at verse 23. You multiplied their descendants like the stars. What was the promise that God gave Abraham? Look up at the stars. Count them. Can you? No. That's what your descendants are going to be like. Here we see Abraham did not, was not alive during this time. He was long dead. And he did not see the promise that he was given fulfilled. And yet right here we know that God was faithful to his promises. Sometimes in life we will not see the promises that God gives us fulfilled. Hebrews talks about the heroes of the faith, the hall of faith, and how they died before they, a lot of them died before they saw their promises fulfilled. Yet, that does not mean that God does not fulfill his promises. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Their descendants went in, they captured, look at verse 25, they captured fortified cities, fertile land, and then there's a big list of what they had. They had, you know, cisterns, they had vineyards, they had olive groves, they had fruit trees in abundance. What's this a picture of? This is a picture of prosperity. This is a picture of a garden-like environment. Fruit trees, olive groves, fertile land. This is garden imagery, right? Where did God's blessing first start? In the Garden of Eden. This is a, a mini picture, a small picture of God's faithfulness in returning his people to be back with him. They ate, they filled, they became prosperous, and they delighted in your great goodness. They're on the, they're on the, the, the peak of the mountain right now. They've got it. They, the Lord's provisions for them are, 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 they can see them, they can feel them. So next, we're going to see what happens when they're there. The next passage is uh, from verses 26 through 31, and Nate Pritchard is going to be reading these. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, and they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. 
However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. At the height of experiencing God's blessing, they become arrogant and they stop listening to the Lord. At the height of experiencing God's blessing, they become arrogant and they stop listening to the Lord. I wonder how many times it's happened in my life. I'm, I'm experiencing God's blessing. I'm good. I'm fine. Sin starts to be justified a little bit more. Well, I've got this going on for me. This is going well. This is going well. And then what happens? They were disobedient and rebelled. Three times it mentions the cycle of Israel. They were, they were um, uh, experiencing God's blessing. They start to compromise. They start to sin. They start to rebel. And so God hands them over to their own consequences, hands them over to their own desires. Sin is a result of it. And then they get encaptured or they get enslaved or they get diseased or they get whatever. And they cry out to God. And does God turn a blind ear to them? No, he listens to them. He redeems his people. He brings them back into prosperity. He gives them blessing. They're there, and what happens? They start to compromise. They start to let sin slip in a little bit. They start to rebel. They start to fling the law of God. They kill their prophets, and then because of that, God abandons them. He brings his hands off, and then all these other nations come in, and they take them away, and then they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and he redeems them, and he blesses them, and then they're experiencing God's blessing, and then what happens next? They start to compromise. Sin starts to sneak in. They start to abandon the law of the Lord. They start to not listen to the spirit. And then because of that, God gets his hands off and he abandons them. And then these nations, the results of their sin, the consequences of the sin come crashing down on them and they cry out to God. And then what does God do? God hears their cry and he redeems them and he loves them and he brings them over and over and over again. That's the story of Israel. I also know that that's the story of us. How many times have we been experiencing God's blessing? Thank you, Lord, for this. And then because of that, we start to compromise. We start to sin. And because of that, we experience these, these, uh, these results of our sins, either from the world, the devil, or the flesh, either from us or from some other people, and then we cry out to the Lord, and he does deliver us in a different way than he did then, but nonetheless, he delivers us. Three times it has that cycle. And at the end of verse 31, it says that he is what again? For you are a gracious and compassionate God. There's that phrase repeated again and again and again. Interestingly, the phrase listen is also the Hebrew word for obey. There's, no, there's actually no Hebrew word for obey. It's just the word listen. So to listen is to obey, is to act. And so when it says listen, you can kind of interchange the word obey. As in, they didn't listen. It's not just that they couldn't hear Moses, like, hey, speak up, I can't hear you. It wasn't that at all. It was like they did not obey the Lord. They did not obey the word of the Lord that came through Moses. So they're in this cycle of, of experiencing God's blessing, of rebelling, of sin, of redemption, experiencing God's blessing. They're in this cyclical pattern. The last section is from verses 32 to 37, and Paige Lehman is coming up to read that. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have affected us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. 
our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them, all the spacious and fertile land you sent before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they would enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because our sins, because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. After 26 verses of exploring the faithfulness and the goodness of God, they finally get to their request. So now, because of all this, now... This is the situation we're in. They say, this is, uh, you, are, you are great, you are mighty, you are awe-inspiring. And then I love verse 33. Follow along with me. You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us. Why? Because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. After acknowledging the Lord's goodness, after acknowledging the Lord's compassion, his graciousness, what do they say? They say, this is the situation we're in. And it's because of, it's our fault, it's the, the sin in our lives, the sin in the world and the devil and the flesh, the sin and the situation we're in is a result of our sins. So Lord, hear our cry. So if you remember, uh, they're back in their land, Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter nine, they're back in their land, but who's, what's happening? Persia is the overlord basically, and they're taxing them so heavily. So yes, they're in their land, but they literally said, here we are in our land, we're slaves in it. We're not yet free completely. Yes, this was a great move of God to bring us back into the land, but yet we are still here and we're not, it's not yet as it should be because of our sin. And then in verse 37, he wraps it all up. Because, uh, it's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. They, to bring you back to the beginning, they see and they feel the results of their sin. They see and they feel the results of their sin. What was the first thing they did? Blessed are you, O Lord, creator of heaven and earth. You are faithful. They see and they feel the results of their sin. You know what the natural inclination is? To look at the results of our sin and exclusively at the results of our sin. And what was the first thing they did? They backed up and they pointed their eyes up and they said, I don't feel like saying this right now. I don't want to say this right now. Everything in me is working against this, but I'm going to. You are blessed be the Lord God. In Jesus' language, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Glorified be your name. Blessed be your name. What do we do when we see and feel the results of our sin? What do you do? What do I do? When we see and we feel the results of our sin. What they did is they recounted the faithfulness of God in contrast to their lack of faithfulness. That's what verse 33 says. You have acted faithfully, O Lord. We have acted wickedly. Now, they stop there because that's their, that's their time, right? They, they started with God's creative, life-giving, beautiful character, and they recounted all of God's glorious acts and all of God's faithfulness up until their moment in time right now. We're not in their moment in time right now, right? 
Right, thank you. Uh, we are th uh, hundreds of years after them, which means what? There have been new acts of God, or continuous acts of God since then. There have been continuous acts of God's faithfulness since then. The, the act of God, the love of God was manifested in who? Jesus, right? The faithfulness of God to not let his people suffer the faithfulness of God to redeem his people out of the consequences of their sin was most realized in Jesus. We, in our sin, we are completely separated from God, completely. And we can see and we feel those results. You know, C.S. Lewis says, if our hearts long for another world, odds are we're not made for this world. We're not. Sin has marred everything about us. We're anxious we're angry, we're sad, we feel pain. And that is not as it should be. And yet God hears our cry and he answered in Jesus. So today, what does this mean for us? When we see and we feel the results of our sin, what should our first response be like their first response be? Father, I do not feel like this right now. I do not feel like saying this. I don't, I don't even know if I believe it, but I'm gonna, I know that you're faithful. You have, never, you have never abandoned your people. You were faithful to Abraham. You were faithful to Isaac. You were faithful to Jacob. You were faithful in your son, Jesus. And that faithfulness, Lord, is still true today for me. And when we, when we fall on the faithfulness of God, when we fall at the foot of the cross, because that's where true love and true faithfulness was shown, right, at the cross. When we fall on the faithfulness of God, then, then we, are, we are now able to cry out to the Lord and he hears our cry and he redeems us from that sin and that slavery. And so um, the question, what do we do when we see and we feel the results of our sin? The question is reflect on God's faith, or the answer is reflect on God's faithfulness. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Seek his face. Psalm 106 is another psalm that kind of does the same thing, where it's a psalm of prayer and the psalm of confession, and it starts just with recounting God's faithfulness. And it doesn't end there because it ultimately shows us that God's faithfulness is most revealed in his son, Christ. And Christ, what did he do? He, he said, yes, this, this covenant uh, is, is good, but this is a new covenant. And his new covenant was in his death and resurrection. And this is what we celebrate every single week. So in just a second here, I'm actually going to invite us to take the elements. But before we do, this isn't just a rote um, transition or something that we do to try to make it um, um, uh, rhythmic or, or monotonous. This is the symbol of God's faithfulness the body and the blood. It is the symbol of God's faithfulness. And so if you have never believed that, if you don't know that, then we, we're gonna kindly ask you not to actually partake of the, the, the bread and the cup because we don't want to falsely uh, affirm or confirm any things if, if you have not realized and fallen on the mercy and grace of God at the foot of the cross. So I'm gonna pray, and then when I'm done praying, I'm gonna invite you to... Um, Come up and take the elements, and then we will observe communion together. Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you are faithful. We're thankful that you are faithful, and we are uh, not faithful, and yet your faithfulness, Lord, it endures forever. 
You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You did not abandon your people then. You will not abandon us now. God, give us faith to live believing you. Give us the strength to look up when we don't want to. Give us the strength to fall on your faithfulness when our own sin has put us has put us in a broken situation. Give us strength to look up when the sin of when the sins of others has caused distress. God, give us strength to look up and recount your faithfulness when just the world is sinful and we hear about disease and pain and brokenness. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength now. And thank you, thank you, thank you that in Jesus, we have ultimate salvation and ultimate forgiveness of sins. We don't have to do anything. Remind us that as we take the bread and the cup, we pray. We pray all this in your son's name by the power of the spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Ankeny Gospel. Thank you.